How's everybody doing? Good. Are you awake and excited? Yes. There's going to be a lot of reading and jumping around, so we got to make sure we're energized. <clears throat> it's good to be together, and uh, and welcome back. Yeah. And thank you, Dave, for the last couple weeks of, of teaching. I'm sorry you'll have a drop-off today. <laughs> Well, I'd like to just dive right in, if we can. So let's go to 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> I'd like to just kind of give a little bit of an introduction, and then if someone would be willing to read our text this morning, that would be great. We're in 18 through 27, chapter 2, 18 through 27, but really we are coming right off the heels of two really important passages, and if we take our eyes back a little bit to verse 17 of chapter 2, we can see there the reminder that this world is passing away, along with its desires, and whoever, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so, here we are, we are doing just that, we're remaining in this world for now. And in light of that, John uh, shifts gears, so to speak, and he wants us to pay very, very close attention to some specific issues. And it's in light of the fact that the world is passing away. So my objective this morning, I have kind of a threefold objective, okay? The first is, I want us to learn and take heed of the warning that John lays out for us. So I want us to learn from the warning, hear from the warning that is specific to us as it is to the original uh, recipients. And that warning, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the spirit of Antichrist and false teachers. Okay. My second objective is for us to be comforted and uh, remember that we are equipped and aided as Christians. And more specifically, we have the spirit of truth and we have assurance that is not in ourselves. So we're going to look at this warning and I want us to be comforted as a result. And then lastly, I hope that we gain a little more clarity on some specific topics uh, that are part of our text today. So as far as approach, I thank you in advance because it's. I feel like it'll be maybe, it might seem a little choppy because... I'm going to have our eyes kind of moving forward and backward. So stay with me. Uh, Always raise your hand if there's a question. We've got to reorient where we're at, okay? But part of that, as you well know, is because John kind of cycles back and forth in repeated topics, right? So I think our best approach is I'm going to try to kind of take it on in in different buckets. But there might be different verses that apply. So I'll guide us through, okay? Um, So thank you in advance. But there's going to be some jumping around. Um, can I have somebody volunteer, if you would, to just read verses 18 through 27? Would somebody be willing to do that for us this morning? Any takers? Thank you. Please. Nice and loud, if you would. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. By this, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us but they do not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. 
And this is the promise that he himself had, or he himself made to us eternal life. I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, just as it is just as it has been taught you, remain in him. So now, little children. Did you say for 28? Where you ended is just fine. Oh, okay. Yeah, thank you. And it, it wouldn't take us long to find the word little children, so no one, no one was uh, confused by that. Thank you. Why don't I pray? I think that would be good. So I'll focus my attention and we'll kick right off. Father God, what an amazing uh, man John uh, was and, and how close of a relationship you had with him. And may we glean from that today. Thank you for the scripture. And although at times our faith can be rattled, um, thank you that we can rely on it. Uh, please minimize distractions from your speaker today. And uh, may we just be edified by looking at the Bible. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. So, of course, we know enough about John that he addresses his people in love, the people that he knows and is uh, acquainted with. So, Back to verse 18, he begins with children, little children. And I think we already understand from previous weeks all of the endearment and affection that kind of goes into that word. Um, And who is it? It's those that are in the family of God and specifically those who John wanted to warn from danger. And you could argue too that it's basically the whole body of the church that is addressed by the teaching of the apostles. So both both apply, but the most specific is John's got probably faces and names in mind when he's saying beloved. But we can also uh, be comforted in how he, he views his little Christians, right? Um, what I learned is that even just linguistically, he's using this word to change topics. So again, he's coming out of the idea of the world passing away, and now he's switching topics to a specific warning. (laughs) But right away, we come to this idea of the last hour. The last hour. Is that new to anybody? We all heard it? Familiar? Familiar, okay. What I learned about the way he communicates the last hour is that the recipients of this letter would have seen that it was em- emphatic tone. There is a, it's, it's bold and maybe underlined, so to speak, right? When he says, the last hour, or the last hour it is. And so what is meant by this? Simply put, we can uh, think in terms of the messianic age. The messianic age. And that is the time between Christ's first coming, and then where we are now, and then in advance of his second coming. Okay? So, the last hour. Um, What is interesting is that, and the best way for us to think of it, is not in terms of uh, your Apple Watch and time, but rather spiritual. Okay? This is more a spiritual understanding. But it's not entirely separated from an actual period. Okay, so this is more a theological term than it is a chronological term, but it's an actual historical period. So it's both of those things. Make sense? And we're almost, you know, 2,000 years in to this last hour. There's different words uh, that could have been used to mean hour. Okay, some of it would mean secession, minute after minute after hour after hour. That's not the one that's implied here as much. There's also the word hour in terms of reference to certain events. And all that's closer, it's not entirely true. So specifically what is used in the last hour is a fixed period. Okay? Which makes sense when we understand of Christ's coming, original coming and second coming. There's a fixed period. Um, 
And we can take comfort in knowing that that fixed period is predetermined by God alone already. Okay? But in light of the fact that we're talking about a period of time, an actual event in history, there is a sense of urgency. There is a sense of eminence and anticipation, right? Because we know that our Lord's coming again. And again, if we compare this idea, and I know we're on just a couple words in, but if you contrast that with the fact that the world is transient, this the nature of this world is transient, it's falling away, it's fading away. Well, in comparison, John gives us some specific qualifiers of this last hour as well. And that takes us to the next idea, and that is that many antichrists have come. Many antichrists have come. And with this period of time, there's going to be an onslaught and an increased amount of that activity up until the point of Jesus' return. In fact, the fact that there are antichrists implies that he is the Christ by definition. In the same way, if you think about all the, in the narratives of the Gospels, I've always wondered, this, how, why is it that there's just so much demonic activity that seems to be in the area? You know, it's not as though you read the Old Testament narrative and people are just getting demons cast out of them all the time. Well, part of that validates the fact that Jesus is who he is because the forces of evil ramp up in his coming. So my point is that that validates, in a way, that Jesus is who he is. And so, by inference, the fact that there is so many attacks on the person of Jesus now almost helps validate that he is who he is because of the attacks. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's shift a little bit to this idea of Antichrist. What comes to mind? What do you think of when you hear that word? I know it's early, it's Sunday morning, some of you are still working on coffee like me, and you come up with this word, topic, Antichrist. What do you think of? Against Christ. Against Christ? Perfect. Anything else? Pretending to be Christ? Yeah. Great. Liars that twist. Liars that twist. Oh, you guys are setting me up. This is great. I want to keep going. Anybody, any other thoughts? For me, it's ominous. I, I kind of hear that word, and my first thought is the scary books in the Christian library about future times when I was a little kid. Um, you know, the revelation and almost apocalyptic and scary topics. I don't know. Maybe you, you guys. I, maybe it's just me. That's what I hear of when I hear Antichrist. It's not a exciting and fun word, right? It's scary. Not for us. Bingo. Well, yeah. But you guys, you guys did a great job in your uh, answers right there because really there's two distinct ideas in Antichrist, that word used in our scripture this morning, okay? The first is in place of or replacing, Okay. And that is the Antichrist. Single, specific pronoun that you think of with end times. Okay? A specific man that is to come. And the idea there is that, correct, it is to replace Christ or to be in place of Christ. And back to our passage, John says, As you have heard already, Antichrist is coming. That implies what? That they have they have knowledge of this already. Now where in scripture could the readers of First John, the recipients of First John, have already gained this type of knowledge? Anybody know? Not a trick question. They were probably familiar with Daniel. Okay? Daniel's writing, and the name is the coming prince. So in the Old Testament, Daniel wrote, I think it's chapter 9, of the coming prince, okay? That is this idea of the Antichrist, singular. By now, Matthew's gospel probably was circulating, and Jesus' words, he uses the son of perdition. Uh, Paul, also, I would think by now, his uh, writings to the Thessalonians might have been understood by these readers as well, and he uses the word Uh, the term man of lawlessness. So there's a lot already in Scripture, in the canon, that reinforces this idea. That's why John could say, you have already heard 
that Antichrist is coming, specific, the one who is in place of or intending to be replacing Christ, okay? Um, and then even John, later after this book, writes his scripture to close the canon in Revelation, and he uses, I think, the term beast that's rising out of the sea. But I, I just want to skip to the end because we can take so much comfort, and you said this, uh, Jesus simply speaks him into defeat, okay? Amen. And it would be easy to spend so much time, and it would be something that I would have to learn a lot about. Um, but this topic, there's so much there, and we're going to kind of fly over. Um, but the exciting part is, with all the ominous truth of this person's granted power, intelligence, cunning, and fury and um, destruction that occurs, that will actually occur. Okay, at the end, a voice from Jesus defeats him. So my takeaway for us here, in light of this specifically, with the idea of the Antichrist to come, and also the idea of assurance too, is that we have to filter everything through the fact that God is sovereign and we are in his providence. And that is where our comfort comes from. So how cool is it that if we jump to the end of Revelation the narrative, Jesus Christ simply speaks him into defeat. He is sovereign over the ultimate personification of evil. And he cannot come into his power until the end of God's appointed time of this idea of the last hour. But I think our focus, and more applicable to us today, is rather this idea of Standing in opposition to, okay? Not taking an idea of replacing Christ, but rather just being opposed to Christ or being against him, okay? And that's where, back in verse 18, many antichrists have come, okay? So it's implied here that at this time, already there is a spirit of antichrist that is familiar and and infiltrating this specific church, Okay? And again, that is more or less the spirit of the Antichrist that is evident in many. So it was true to some of the people that were in this church. But one of the things that I learned in my study is that it's not always the case, okay? The spirit of Antichrist, it's not commonly or primarily in the church, although our example is from 1 John, okay? But it is certainly most dangerous if this were to occur in our church. Make sense? It is most dangerous that this spirit of Antichrist being opposed to Jesus, the truth that we know from Scripture, who he says he is, the work that he did, and his gospel specifically, being against that in any way, is most dangerous when it's prevalent in our church. For me, it's very, very hard to make the leap from these significant topics. You say Antichrist, that has a, that, there's just some weight to that topic, right? And for me, it's very hard to make the leap from the examples of false teachers down to maybe coworkers or people at our restaurants that we're at, um, maybe our neighbors. And that's a harsh reality to think about. Um, but it's essentially the same quality, okay? And that's that's very, very significant, and that's why John can be so just right to the point in his writing with clear contrast. And that's why the person of Jesus is at the center stage of this entire book. I think early on when we introduced the book, some of our readers talked about the Jesus question. You have to start with getting that right. but what was impressed upon me is the same idea, the same spirit in the Antichrist is there in opposition with the spirit of Antichrist that can be found and pervasive today so that's a that's hard, it's difficult but it's true
Let's take our eyes and stay on this topic, but look up to verse 22. How are they categorized here? I think it was said earlier. Um, what do you see there? How are they categorized? What is it? Who is okay, the liar? Okay, so rejecting Jesus makes us a liar. This is belief in Jesus, but maybe just admitting that he lived, maybe elevating his message, maybe admiring his noble life, and yet that in and of itself is not enough, right? It is believing his work, his person. We know what we mean by person, fully God, fully man. And his gospel, on his terms, as shown to us in Scripture. Okay. If we start chipping away at that, that is the spirit of being against Christ. <clears throat> Daniel Aiken is somebody who I've really, really pulled a lot from, and he really helps point out that the main tactic of Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist is not so much blasphemy or pure opposition in terms of... uh, um, It's more deception and confusion, okay? As opposed to maybe just bold-faced lies that would be immediately rejected by those who are familiar with Christ or Christians, right? So we need to think in terms of a spirit against Christ that is deceptive and seductive and and versus something that is totally blasphemous. And the reason for that is that's a better way to infiltrate into those that, that know, uh, know the Savior and can cause confusion. In other words, it could be truth mixed with lies as opposed to direct opposition to Christ. Maybe, it's, maybe we redefine him. Maybe we reimagine him. Here's a great summary from... Daniel Aiken, the spirit of Antichrist always diminishes the person and work of Jesus, obviously. It chips away at his deity and rejects his work of atonement. It attempts to lead one down the road of spiritual error and a theology dead end. This is the top this is the type of teaching in 1 John that is so repetitive that we just can't miss it. You know. I would like us to turn to the book of John, his gospel, okay? And let's go to chapter 8. John chapter 8. <coughs> Before we jump into that text, I'm going to shift gears a little bit because what I wanted to do is pull in something that I think is kind of relevant, um, or, or I should say current, as an example of how slippery the idea of Antichrist can be in our day and age today. Okay, And um, it was last... Maybe two weeks ago, I was really struck by a, an advertisement on a major network, and it was it was something that just stood out to me because it was the topic of Jesus. There wasn't a lot to it. it. Had a website, and you know the message of Jesus, and off it went. Next commercial, I thought to myself, "Wow, that's a lot of money on this time of day." I think it was a basketball game at halftime, national national TV. So I went online. And uh, to their website, and I'm going to just read verbatim from the homepage, okay? And I have to be careful here because um, it's reading a book by its cover, literally. Um, but there's, I just wanted you to hear and uh, and and pick up on some things that are 
true, but maybe not whole in terms of who Jesus is. Okay? Um, I'll just go with it. Jesus gets our lives because he was human too. Totally agree. Jesus was arrested, wrongly judged, a refugee, and canceled. Have you ever experienced frustration, sorrow, temptation? So was Jesus. Jesus understood what life was like for people in his day, especially for the marginalized. He was drawn to those on the fringes because he was too, an immigrant, homeless, arrested, bullied. Through it all, Jesus welcomed, outcast, stood up for women, hung out with troublemakers, even befriended enemies. He did it because of his love, empathy, and acceptance for us all. Given today's increasingly divisive and mean-spirited world, we're all seeking something better. What if Jesus is the example we're searching for? Want to learn more? Jesus' radical compassion stands in stark contrast to all current hate and intolerance. This is why his teachings, the way he lived and what he stood for, still provide such an inspiration today. He gets us. He gets all of us. Whatever you're experiencing, Jesus faced it too. Chat with someone or connect one-on-one or with a group to learn more. There's also a reading plan. Get to know the real Jesus on your terms. I can get behind quite a bit of that because there's truth. What about Jesus is not even mentioned? His Savior? Holiness. It's holy? The idea of sin? His gospel. So, in fairness, at least that isn't prevalent at my first glance. Okay? And so, in fairness, maybe that is uh, content that would be included. But I just want to continue on because there's a few options that are right there in front of you. And this one is another example of the topic of anxiety. So, COVID, work, social and political differences, the 24-hour news cycle. It's hard to escape the many stressors of today's world. If you deal with bouts of anxiety and worry, take heart. Jesus did too. Jesus knew the tension that comes with being disliked. In fact, he'd made some powerful enemies. One night, he became particularly worried because he knew his adversaries would soon come for him. He knew he'd be arrested, tortured, and executed, and it stressed him out. Jesus dealt with his anxiety the way many of us do. He retreated to a favorite quiet place, a garden of old-growth olive trees on the side of a mountain. He brought his friends along for support while he wrestled with his emotions. But when he wanted to pray, he wandered away a bit, probably so they wouldn't hear what he was saying. He asked God to make his problem go away, to give this responsibility to somebody else, but he knew God wasn't going to answer that prayer. Jesus said his soul was grieved to the point of death. That's how he described his anxiety. There were reports that he was so upset he was sweating so much like blood drops that fell to the ground. Just like us, Jesus did his best to deal with it. And just like us, his coping mechanisms didn't work so well. His friends fell asleep despite his prayers. He still had the same impossible job to do. And the men who were hunting and found him that night, right there in the garden. Yet despite his total failure... To calm his anxiety, Jesus found the strength to face his accusers. He submitted to them willingly and without violence, knowing that his death would only further suspend his message of radical love. So, Jesus is more... He's just as much a central figure today as he was when he was born. But... The spirit of Antichrist, again, I want to reinforce, is not necessarily pure blasphemy, but rather maybe subtle or leading to deception or uh, missing the whole context of who he is. And again, I'll say it, who he is as a person, his work, and his gospel as defined in Scripture, not (coughs) through our filter, okay? Um, It is my understanding that a lot of the information that I brought in, just as an example, okay, was uh, six months of research and, and a similar firm that uh, is a top-end clothing line, clothing line and, a, uh, and a very expensive luxury vehicle car. 
So there's a lot of money behind an ad campaign for this type of material, okay? <clears throat> I spent a lot of time there, but that's today. That's in our world right now. And uh, I think it's a good illustration. So thank you for bearing with me there. <clears throat> You are in John 6 or John 8, I forget. Okay. We're going to keep moving on with our, with our scripture passage in 1 John. But here I wanted to, us to go and hear directly from Jesus. Um, for me personally, uh, and some of my personal reading plan that I've been working through, ironically, I'm in John right now, uh, and I've just been struck again how inextricably linked together God is the Father and Jesus are when Jesus communicates. And, I mean, ultimately, why is it that the Jews tried to kill him? Ultimately, what is it? Claim to be God. And that was not nuanced, right? That's my point. And my, just personally for me, this year, I've just, just by reading the, the pages in front of me, I'm like, wow, he, he continually, repetitively uh, linked himself as a package deal, God the Father. <clears throat> and uh, also, because of our, uh, our study in 1 John, I also see how the gospel and, and the epistle of 1 John are totally linked as well in a lesser way. So I want to come to these passages to hear directly from Jesus. Okay? And let's go to verse 31. And what, what is uh, significant here is that Jesus said to the Jews, and what does it say next? Okay, so these are Jews who believed him. And he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. <clears throat> so these are Jews who believed in him, and the, the narrative continues, we don't have time to go through it all, but the narrative continues basically saying and contrasting, Jesus, my father is God the father, and your father is Satan, the father of lies. Okay? So concepts familiar to us in 1 John. One, abiding. That word abiding is here from lips of Jesus. Uh, contrasting truth versus lies. <clears throat> and so the narrative ensues going back and, back and forth with uh, Christ illustrating how if you knew me, you would know the Father because the Father and I are one. <clears throat> All the way down to... Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus hid himself away in the temple. So we go from the Jews who had believed him, being confronted with truth, and now they're ready to stone him. But isn't it confusing to you that if they are believers in Jesus, why are they attacking him and stoning him? Do you get the contrast there? I see that word and I'm so confused. Could be confused. Because they're called Jews who were believers. Back to 1 John, please. Now we're to verse 19 of chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Difficult passage, okay? Um, so this is one that I hope I can kind of cut through the noise and just become uh, more of a comforting passage as we know it a little bit better. <clears throat> there are two teams. There are two teams here, and it's us and them. <coughs> The they that is listed is, the antecedent to that word is Antichrist. So those that are opposed to or against Jesus, that is the they that is referenced in verse 19. They went out from us. So specifically, people in John's community, the church there, have now departed. They were not saved. They had not been regenerated. John MacArthur helpfully summarizes this concept of this verse by those that depart the fellowship, deny true faith, and try to deceive or confuse faithful and take others with them. So the false teachers here that are specific to our passage, again, departing, they end up departing the fellowship, they leave. They deny the true faith. 
and they tried to deceive and bring people with them. They probably left involuntarily. They probably weren't excommunicated. They probably left because they were unsuccessful at deceiving because of the truth that was known by us. So we have them, two teams, them and us. And here we are with us, back to 19. They went out from us, but they were not from us, or if they've been at us. John does, he's so repetitive. Sometimes it, sometimes it's uh, like being a dead horse, but that's probably because I need to hear it. Amen. <clears throat> Who is us? True church. church. Christians. Christians in general. And even more specifically, those who follow the apostles' teaching. Okay? So you could go very, very specific with the fact that um, John is uh, speaking to us as the apostles and those that uh, hold to our teaching. But I think generally speaking, we know that the team is they and us, non-believers, believers. And what's so amazing is that the back half of our verse, again, 19, this happened that it might become plain that they are not of us. So in light of confusion, in light of uncertainty, again, a hard passage, but clarity and almost a benefit of this occurrence, okay? So God, I love this. Again, he's sovereign in everything. God used false teachers to make false, uh, to take false believers out of the church so as not to remain and be harmful. Even false Teachers serve a purpose within God's sovereign plan. I love Alistair Begg. Does anybody like hearing Alistair Begg? Mm-hmm. It's more the accent than anything. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Here, listen to this uh, summation. There are some who share for a while our earthly company who did not share our heavenly birth. Isn't that really helpful? I kind of summarize. And there are some who share for a while our earthly company who did not share our heavenly birth. So if you're like me, you have a lot of questions about those that claim to be believers um, and yet, uh, in this case, walk away because they are denying the fellowship, denying true faith. Theologically, this leads us to really deep waters and the idea of perseverance. Have you, are you guys familiar with perseverance of the saints as a theological topic? Let's go back, if you would, to John 6 now. Again, thank you for being so flexible. I know we're, we're jumping around a ton. John chapter 6, please. And verse 35. I'll read this for us. It's 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, by the way, this is in the narrative. This is after feeding of the 5,000. He walks on water. I think that there's kind of a motif of eating and bread that's already set up for us in this narrative. But I want to go to this passage because when it comes to perseverance, um, God's sovereignty is at play. And when we look internally to ourselves for our assurance, that is a, uh, a, a failing approach, okay? So what I want us to read here is verse 35 through 40, and I'll do so now. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In this passage, we have a total fulfillment in Christ and His life. There's unbelief. There's unbelief of people who are directly encountering Jesus. And despite that, there's unbelief. We have the reference of the incarnation, of His coming from heaven. 
We have the fact that Jesus does the will of the Father. And we have permanence. Permanence of Him doing His will and holding those who are His own. We have a resurrection to eternal life. And we have the idea of rejection as well. There's so much here that really you know why John is... First uh, John is so linked to this passage, right? It's almost like they are uh, reading as one. <clears throat> So back to 1st John, this idea of perseverance is nicely summarized again by Daniel Aiken when he says perseverance is the proof of possession. Good alliteration there. Perseverance is the proof of possession. John MacArthur says salvation is proven by perseverance. True Christians stay in the faith. So the obvious question here for us, obvious question is if someone who genuinely trusts Christ for salvation can later abandon the faith? And the scripture holds emphatically that the answer is no. In fact, the scriptures scream that the answer is no. It's a tough question. It's a hard question. It's an obvious question, especially in the light of what's illustrated here with those that are in the church in John's day. <clears throat> or maybe the example that we just read about believing Jews. Um, who quickly wanted to stone Jesus in light of being confronted with truth. Eternal security of true believers is ultimately founded on the preserving nature of the Trinity. This was such a helpful just comfort for me personally, being reminded of that truth. And here it is. The Father gives the elect to the Son, predestining them to be conformed in the Son's image. As we just read, it is the Son who keeps them, atones for them, and certifies by his resurrection. And when he saves, he saves to the utmost. And it's the Spirit who seals, and as we will read in our next bucket, that is the anointing, okay, for believers. So again, it's the Trinity that is where our eyes need to be in terms of the idea of perseverance. This was a very helpful quote. And I apologize. I, there should be stuff in front of you. To, and I did not get that done. So you could, your eyes could read with me. But I'll read from uh, Richard Mayhew. To suggest then that sinners who, for whom Jesus Christ offered himself as a propitiation, which means an exchange, right? God's righteousness, our sin, the great exchange. So to say that sinners for whom Christ offered himself as a propitiation, may yet suffer somehow eternal penalty of God's wrath, is to demean the worth of his redemptive sacrifice and contradict the Father's testimony. That's really helpful. In other words, we invalidate the truth of um, redemption. If we were to think that true believers could still uh, suffer eternal wrath, I liked this as well from Daniel Aiken. Think of your own life as I did when I was reading this. Fall into sin via neglect or temptation? Yes. Grieve the spirit? Impair graces impair, and, and impair comforts? Yes. Bring reproach on the cause of Christ? Yes. Bring judgment on ourselves? Yes. Are we lost? No. We are kept by the power of God through faith until salvation. So again, the antidote to lack of assurance which is implied and inherent with being a Christian. That's why it's a a central topic to Christians here. The antidote cannot be found in ourselves. Okay? Again, thank you for being uh, right on point with me here as we jump around. Let's continue back in 1 John chapter 2. I want to go ahead in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Or if you look down in verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone that should teach you. His anointing teaches you about everything and is no lie. The anointing here is who? The Holy Spirit. And there's a play on words 
for the original readers would have seen the word used and it would be really similar to Antichrist too. So there's almost, there's just something to be said about just one little detail change in the words between Antichrist and the anointing. But what a chasm, what a major contrast and difference between those two. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who have knowledge of godliness and the idea of not just the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of truth is John's phrase. I think he would copyright that if he could. Spirit of truth. Um, even different commentators that I've been reading, some of them disagree here and say that the anointing is something that is actually a special understanding of how to attack heresy. But I think more, I don't know if I could say that I entirely agree with that because uh, it's more likely that this is the fixed Holy Spirit given to those who are who are true believers. And what a comfort, too, to know that this does not happen in degrees. This doesn't happen in different allotments. Make sense? So if you are in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you have the whole Holy Spirit. Uh, Holy Spirit. Okay? There are not degrees. There's not amounts. Now, we certainly can quench the Spirit. We certainly, in our human way, grieve and do not rely on the Holy Spirit as we should. But in terms of access, it's 100%. As opposed to maybe some of the false teaching occurring at the time where there was an extra little boost of spirit that certain unique Christians had that others didn't. Okay, So it's important for us to recognize when we have the Holy Spirit, we have all the Holy Spirit. And that's the anointing. <clears throat> There's also an idea of... Uh, beards and oil, but I didn't go into that one. The anointing, the word anointing and oil on people's beards, which I, I, I like that part. <clears throat> this idea in verse 27 that you have no need for anyone to teach you. Okay, well, we can take that to an extreme that's inaccurate. It's not saying that we don't need biblical teaching. That's what First John is doing, okay? And there's other areas in Scripture, particularly with uh, in Timothy, where we know that biblical teaching Absolutely is what we need. What is meant here is that you don't need human wisdom to augment what, or, or man-centered philosophy to be added to what can be known in Christ and the truth that is in Scripture. Okay, does that make sense? So don't even be tripped up with that passage in verse 27. John here is elevating the gospel truth as sufficient and not needing any additional special knowledge. The Spirit's ministry, this is key too. The Holy Spirit doesn't teach new truth. There's not new revelation. There's not new knowledge. The Spirit affirms and illuminates what is known in Scripture. And so we can never assume that we're going to divert from what is revealed in Jesus Christ by His Spirit's leading. Because later in this, this book that we are in, we'll know that we have to test spirits which implies that it could have wrong leadings. <clears throat> this was amazing. Paul, I'm sorry, uh, John doesn't refute this false teaching here as saying, guys, listen to me, I'm the apostle, I've been around, uh, I was close to Jesus, in light of that, listen to me. Because he does that in other areas. Here, he doesn't, he doesn't point to his apostleship as the, as the focus to uh, combat this. Rather, he says, he points to a more certain truth, and that is what resides in us permanently to strengthen our faith, and that is the Holy Spirit. So he, that, that's, a, that's a great commentary on the truth of the Holy Spirit, okay? We come to a topic, or a, a word, a key word, and that's abide. Go to verse 24, and we'll, we'll move quickly here. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What, what did they hear from the beginning? It was the gospel truth. This word abide, is, it's mentioned 23 times in the, in the book. And even in our little passage here, we have it multiple times. This idea of abiding is union and communion. I like that. It's continual action of remaining. And more literal, my favorite, people would have read this and they would have thought of the command to settle down and dwell. Settle down and dwell. So abiding in him. Let's settle down and let's dwell. Theologically, this would be known as 
sanctification, which I think is familiar to us. <clears throat> Again, deep waters. The prize is eternal life. So, so many times, when I came to that uh, part of our chapter here, where, and this is the promise that is made to us, eternal life. It's like, do I ever, do I ever focus so much on living that this life that I missed the whole point? We're promised eternal life. So let's continue in faithfulness. The key warning, again, we're in the midst of a warning here, is if man's teaching goes beyond or outside what Jesus and his apostles taught, they have a different spirit than that of truth. And that whole spirit is against Christ. It is antichrist. Again, one... Ones that are those that are antichrist, they deny, they depart, they deceive. On the other hand, that's them. On the us, we affirm the faith, we remain to the end, cannot be permanently deceived. I'll close there and I want to read verse five of a song that we sing many times here in this church. <clears throat> In Christ alone, verse 5 says, No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. I don't want to ever minimize and fly over and be flippant about the struggle that one might have of assurance. Um, it's real, and I don't want to ever fly over and minimize the true depths of maybe eschatology and what happens in the end times, or the truth of perseverance of the scriptures, uh, perseverance of the saints, and the idea of um, sanctification. So I hope that you can uh, recognize that we're trying to move quick with a lot of topics. I don't want to ever come across as though uh, you need to suck it up by your bootstraps. But rather, let's not look internal. I want us to just remember that it is the Trinity, it is God's doing, and it is the Son and the Spirit who are involved in assurance. Okay? Thank you so much. I know we're flying around. With that, um, we will end and uh, we'll go into our main service together. So thank you.